Welcome to Footnotes, a history podcast focused on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I got a B-plus on a history test once, and I'm joined here with my best friend, Kevin. Thank you, Mark. By 1850, Cornelius Vanderbilt was the wealthiest man on the planet. He was a steamboat magnate. He was a just the perfect industrialist. This guy was bred to be a businessman. He would punctuate every sentence with profanity. He rarely drank in an era of pretty constant alcoholism. And he would keep track of his money in his head at all times. When he had hundreds of thousands of dollars, he could tell you his net worth probably down to the quarter. He was someone who understood money and made money for the sake of making money. He didn't even value wealth that much. But he had become this powerful man who controlled pretty much every steamboat in the Atlantic Ocean and even the Pacific Ocean. It's a lot of boats. He sees this wonderful opportunity to set up a steamboat empire to control transit back and forth between the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States. Because even though the United States had technical control over its entire territory, pretty much that you see on a map now, most of the, inti the interior was still fairly unsettled by Americans. And we've already talked about how difficult it was to get across from the East Coast to the West Coast. There were no planes. You had to take a boat or walk. Vanderbilt saw an opportunity to potentially turn the Nicaragua transit route into a canal. And when he saw this opportunity, just due to the geographical nature of the country of Nicaragua, it got his imagination really moving. Again, this is the wealthiest man in the world with business connections everywhere. He pretty much controlled the courts if he wanted to because he could just pay his way through. So what he decides to do is charter a yacht, put his, some of his you know, best workers on the yacht, and he goes down to the city of Greytown, which is on the Atlantic Caribbean coast of Nicaragua. And he decides that he's going to find a way to make that route much faster, much more comfortable, and therefore significantly more profitable. But the route, at least in the 1840s and about 1850, wasn't that comfortable. Anybody who had traveled on it when they had tried to get to California from, let's say, New York City, simply talked about how uncomfortable they were. There was mosquitoes everywhere. If they went in the wet season, it drenched people. There were muddy roads. They had to walk through swamps. None of it was comfortable. So he goes, all right, I got a lot of wealth. I got a lot of power. I have a lot of industrial power. I want to see this for myself. So he takes a steamer. That's you know a big steam engine boat. He gets to the port of Greytown, which had been the scene of British and American naval duels. They'd been fighting over the town for a while, though technically it was kind of an American sphere of influence at this point. And when he gets to the river, he has an agent, agent who's already there, and the agent says, we, we can't take steamboats up this river. And by steamboat, I mean paddle boats with two wheels on the side that move the boat up a river. These are shallow-bottom boats, the classic like Huckleberry Finn paddle boats um, with gambling halls on them. That kind of thing. His agent still tells him, I can't get this up the river. He goes, why? The agent says, there's rapids. There's areas where the river drops 10, 20 yards in 
50 yards. What that basically means is the water is white and foaming and there's rocks everywhere. Not great for large vessels. No. Historically. You just go straight into the rocks. But Vanderbilt was the kind of guy who once he got his mind wrapped around something, he wasn't going to give up. And he endeavors to do something that I still think is one of the craziest feats that a person has ever done. There are three sets of rapids that are on the Rio San Juan. So it's the San Juan River, which is the largest river in Nicaragua. It actually forms the border between Nicaragua and Costa Rica. And it just goes through basically pristine jungle. Most of it's still pretty pristine today. And so he sails up to these rapids and three rapids are in a row. And the first one he just looks at and goes, I have an idea. And what he decides to do is he turns his paddle boat into a tank. He takes those paddle wheels and he uses them like tank treads. He finds the route of least rockiness, which was actually on one of the banks of the river. And by cranking up the engine and turning up the torque on the paddle wheels, he crawls the boat over the rocks, over the rapids. That is, what? That is like some early 1900 Mickey Mouse nonsense. Oh, that's Steamboat Willie. In terms of Steamboat, but in terms of Steamboat physics, that is where we're at right now. So that gets him over the first rapids. And he goes to the second set, which is actually far steeper. He can't do that this time. Shocking. So instead, they get the boat as close as possible, strap it to a bunch of really big trees kick everybody out, and push it up the rocks, using the, the wheels again to provide extra leverage. He gets over that set and goes to the third set of rapids and just climbs that one easy. At this point, he's just... This seems like a lot of work. It's a lot of work. This seems like a lot of risk. We've talked about risk. That's fair. This one is much more modern, though, because there's no real danger of him being hurt in this. It's a shallow river. He's not gonna, probably not going to drown. So he loses his steamboat. He's he a multi-millionaire. A yeah. <laughs> so for him, this is just, he wants to do it, and he can make a ton of money if he pulls this off. Well, he f figures out this way of getting up the ocean, uh, the, up into Lake Nicaragua from the ocean. Oddly enough, I never read how the steamers did this after him. I think they channelized it. I think they carved canals around these rapids, which is generally the way you solve the rapid problem. <laughs> but I think hold, he had hold, to get hold, up hold, first. Hold on. You mean to tell me that tank rolling your steamboats over rocks is not considered a de facto system? No. I have been doing it wrong. <laughs> Once he gets up to Lake Nicaragua, which is a giant, relatively shallow lake, it's an old uh, caldera, it's, in the, it's a volcano, and there's two active volcanoes in the middle of the lake. Called and OM. so he just slingshotted his boats over them <laughs> he, in fashion. He actually just went around them. Uh, what a wuss. Yeah, right? He... He gets a bunch of connections with the Nicaraguan government at that time, which is pretty much in a, in a state of civil war. Um, so they want money. And he sets up what's called the Accessory Transit Company, which is the worst name ever for a company, um, with the sole intention of chartering steamers from New York City originally, just New York City, going down around to Greytown, going up San Juan River, going across Lake Nicaragua, and then taking a stagecoach across that tiny, it's, I think it's about 12 miles from uh, Virgin Bay, to uh, San Juan del Sur, which is the Pacific port. He sets all this up, and the intention, and he's a very good businessman, remember, is, from the Nicaraguan perspective, the intention, intention is for this route to go through their country, they make money off of his profit. Because 
The idea is he'll charge people money every step of the way, and the Nicaraguan government will basically skim off the top. It's their country. People are moving through it. Fair is fair. I think that's just called taxes. It's taxes and tolls, right? Keyword is profits. Because Vanderbilt immediately finds a way around this. What he does to completely defraud them out of money, legally, is he basically makes the upfront cost of the ticket from the steamboat that goes from New York to Greytown. Greytown's also called San Juan del Norte. So you'll see two San Juans. It's kind of annoying. He makes that ticket the entire price of the trip. So he just takes the loss on his Nicaraguan portion of the company. So they're basically in the constant red, constantly losing money. But he just keeps funneling them money because they're not making any profit because he doesn't charge the passengers anything to go across Nicaragua. He only charges them in the oceans. Is he charging them more in the oceans to offset that? Yes. Okay. So he charges them everything up front. But he's still paying something to the Nicaraguans? He only has to pay off profit. So he doesn't have to pay them anything. I think he does have little payments here or there, but functionally, he gets this for free. So he makes a lot of money. After this, he feels pretty good about himself. He is famous beyond all belief for these things. He is dramatically reducing travel time, helping people get from one side of the country to the next. I mean, that's a good thing. So he decides to get his money together, and he makes the biggest, best yacht ever. This is like a super Titanic that he just puts his family on and his best buddies. And he goes on a tour of Europe. And while he's gone, a couple of businessmen decide to try their luck. Now, one of his best partners was a man named Morgan, last name Morgan, who had also had his own steamboat company uh, out of New Orleans, doing a very similar route. This guy was originally going through Panama, though, because there were two routes. There's one through Nicaragua and one through Panama. The Nicaraguan route was actually easier at this point. Panama Canal didn't exist. So this guy, Morgan, has his own company, but he ends up becoming a partner with Vanderbilt to gain a lot of money. Well, this guy, Morgan, links up with another man named Garrison, who is on the San Francisco end, the Pacific end, of Vanderbilt's company, the accessory transit company. And these guys start to manipulate the stock market by crashing the stock price of the accessory transit company as it's trading in New York City, because it's kind of a separate entity. And they, in the process of killing the company, buy the really cheap stock and take it from They basically take it out from under him while he's in Europe, expecting them to manage the company for him. They steal it from him. Bet that plays out well. He was not happy. <laughs> he held a grudge. He held a grudge to a point where when he returned, he cut his European trip short. He was just hobnobbing with rich people. He cuts his European trip short. He steams back at full speed once he learns about this. And he approaches these two men. And he's steaming mad. Steaming mad. And when he approaches them, he doesn't say, you know, I'm going to take my company back or I'm going to make your lives hard. He says, I will ruin you. He wants these men to be penniless in an asylum. He wants to make their lives that bad. He is that angry. This is, this is his pride and joy. He turned a boat into a tank to make this company. And they stole from him. And he, it's going to be a long time before he takes this company back. But now a very ruthless and very rich man has an extremely strong interest in Nicaragua. And all the shipping lanes in Nicaragua are controlled by these guys, Garrison and Morgan, who are very well aware that they have an angry, powerful enemy who's going to actively try to take the company back from them. Soon as Vanderbilt gets back in the United States, he begins to manipulate the stock price. Basically, he starts his own company again, and he sets up a competitor. And using his own money, he charges cheaper rates to go through Panama. 
so he's in the red. He doesn't care. He wants his company back. Because once he gets the company back, he'll make all his money back. Once he gets the accessory transit company back, he's golden. So he's going to go into the red for as long as he can until he ruins these men, gets his company back, and then he's fine. This is a good idea. It's a good plan for him. This is something we've seen rich people do throughout history. Self-interested rich people going, I will spend my own money to make a point. And then make more money because of it. But remember, the end result of this is people don't have to travel around South America anymore. The other end result is that William Walker goes to Nicaragua because there's money to be made there. That's a place you want to control because if you control Nicaragua, you actually have a lot of wealth because of all this transit wealth. So Vanderbilt becomes this important character in this story of William Walker's conquest of Nicaragua. And there's a good book on this. If you want an easy, quick read to learn about this subject, um, it's one of the books I used for this um, podcast. Is It's called Tycoon's War by Stephen Dando Collins. It's like the best simple, quick, get through it, learn everything you want about this. Um, very, very easy to read. Tons of detail. It's hard to follow the story really closely because there's so much detail in it. Once you have power, how do you keep it when other powerful men are actively trying to stop you. William Walker conquered the capital of Nicaragua. What he actually did was he took over the empty garrison of one side in the civil war's main city. But in doing so, he gained the upper hand in the battle. At this point, the leaders of the legitimists and the leaders of the democraticos want to sue for peace and form what will be called the provisional government. Due to Walker being in such a position of power, he is going to insist on having a strong position in that government, but what he wants to be is the commander-in-chief of the armies. Because he knows by keeping his position as the lead general, he has the power. What ends up happening is a man by the name of Patricio Rivas not to be confused with the city of Rivas, becomes the actual president. This man was a moderate. He'd been president before. Um, he gets to play an actual active presidential role. Walker doesn't tell him exactly what he's going to do, but he becomes president. He wasn't really a part of either party. And then the rest of the government, all the main government positions, are occupied mostly by legitimists, legitimistas, with a few by democraticos. Walker tries to tread that fine line between winning the war, but then bringing in those who you've beaten onto your side. The problem is, as you start to play two sides, you have a very, very good chance of alienating both. Winning and keeping are two very different things. And that's the problem he has. So he's put into a situation where he needs a couple of things. First of all, time is his friend. The longer things take, the more men he gets. Time is a little bit of a problem for him, too, because the more men he gets, the more likely they are to go plunder the countryside because they're bored, which they will do. Because the war is over. The, they have nothing to do. This is all they do. It is all they do. More time means more soldiers. These soldiers come, they further strengthen his position. Now, there's an interesting story. When he had taken over the city of Granada, he needs to seem like he has more soldiers because he's heavily outnumbered, and he knows that if he actually has a battle, with the legitimista forces, he'll probably lose. But he's in their capital and he's in a position of power. So what he decides to do is he takes a bunch of people from the steamers that are sitting on Lake Nicaragua in Virgin Bay, and he takes the passengers and says, 
I need you to look like my soldiers. Because the enemy general, I believe the man's name is Chamorro, he's going to march into Granada with his army with like a flag of truce so they can have negotiations and set up this provisional government. But Walker needs to seem as powerful as possible. His army's like 50 guys. And then the Democrat forces too, but he's really outnumbered. So what he does is he takes this steam liner and he tells the people, hey, you've been sitting here for three months. Ever since this, the phalanx, the phalanhe, has been in Nicaragua, they've been stuck, which isn't great for the, the transit company now run by Morgan and Garrison. Their people aren't happy. So he tells them, hey, you're stuck here until I'm in power, until I have control. And now we have hostages. <laughs> here, take this musket and go stand rigidly like you're a soldier. So he lines up these passengers and he just simply tells them, be soldiers for a day. They do it flawlessly. When the legitimist uh, general comes in, he is sufficiently impressed by the numbers. And he knows that if he does sue for peace, he hasn't really lost He's in a fairly equal terms. He's going to be in good standing. Walker ends the Civil War. And Walker had been doing things that really got him on the good side of the populace. Now, the average person in Nicaragua just wanted the war to end. At a certain point, the typical person doesn't care about the Civil War. They just want the fighting to stop. They want their sons back. They want their crops to be grown in their fields and not stolen by some marauding army. Walker was very good to the typical person. And the way he did this was he would not forcibly conscript young men into his army. All of the Nicaraguan armies would do that. They would show up in a village and just take all the young men, force them to join their army. That's how they got their armies large. But the men didn't fight very hard, and they ran away. They didn't want to fight in this war. They didn't care. They wanted to go work on their farms and be with their families. What a concept. Walker would also take prisoners. And when he did take prisoners, he wouldn't kill them. Any time in these, this civil war, which had gotten very bloody, that a Nicaraguan soldier had been taken prisoner, they would be immediately executed by the other side. Well, after the Battle of Virgin Bay, a lot of soldiers are captured, wounded. Walker treats their wounds and then sends them home. When he takes over his, his role as commander-in-chief of the provisional government's armies, he sends everybody home. All of the young men are very happy to go home, and all the legitimists and the democrats just want their families back together well they also don't have an army now walker is the only army oh man yeah this is how he takes over the actual government is being run by nicaraguans from both parties really quickly they realize what's happening they're being given positions in the government but no but no power to like enforce their positions or advance their positions yeah they're being, they're being satiated, but not anything more than that. No, no, not at all. Quite quickly, right as the provisional government's forming, remember things take a little longer in these times. You know, these are weeks that some of these events take as people just walk across the, you know, the country. One of the former leaders, an old man, a legitimist leader by the name of Mayorga, he actually um, becomes the scapegoat because as one of the steamers is move, moving up Lake Nicaragua filled with American passengers, some legitimist forces shoot cannon at it, and they kill some Americans. And they actually kill a, a woman and her child. At this time in history, that becomes a much bigger deal because it's a woman and her child. They're, just, they're American citizens just trying to get through. Very quickly, Walker makes a scapegoat as, out of one of these older government figures, and it's a pretty brutal event. They say, all of the Nicaraguan cabinet ministers say, this wasn't this guy's fault, it was just a stupid mistake. They send his wife and his daughters 
to beg Walker. They keep him up till like you know 4 a.m. begging him, pleading, crying to save their father. The next day he has him shot. And this develops Walker's other concept. Now he's generally pretty good to the populace, but if anybody gets in his way, he will kill them. Because he believes that he has to have a harsh hand because that's the only way that these people will listen to him and that's one of those colonial edicts you'll hear a lot in the 19th century and caused a considerable amount of death and violence so he kills this guy and he's criticized by pretty much everybody but he thought it was necessary and it's pretty much starting at this point that both former legitimists and former democrats are thinking this is not this is not going the way we wanted to. We got we brought this guy in to end the war. It's it's not working. So they start to actually physically move from him. He's still in the capital, controlling the capital, and he's you know he's in control of the country by force of arms. They all go to the old capital, a city called Leon, right next to the current capital of Nicaragua. And Walker, in the interim, he realizes he needs something really really badly. He needs recognition. And what I mean by recognition is he needs recognition by the American government. He needs to be told that he is the rightful government, not him himself. He specifically wants Rivas, President Rivas, to be the proper government, this provisional government to be accepted by the Americans. He gets very lucky because he has a fan who is in the American ambassadorial grouping, the consulate, a man by the name of Wheeler, who has been participating in this entire event as literally like a guy waving a flag, go Walker, on the sidelines. And that guy is given advice from the Secretary of the State to recognize the new Nicaraguan government. Secretary of State was too vague. Secretary of State doesn't want Walker recognized. He wants the Nicaraguan government recognized. This fan of Walker, who's the consul, the American consul in Nicaragua, recognizes Walker and Rivas. As a result, Franklin Pierce, the president of the United States at the time, who is the one of the most forgetful, easily forgettable presidents franklin pierce fans are going to write in yeah just so you know yeah he's recognized as one of the worst presidents in american history but he recognizes william walker doesn't exactly help his you know reputation right the provisional government with all of these nicaraguan cabinet members of various parties with commander-in-chief william walker is the recognized government and he hopes that if he has this recognition that he'll be able to get more settlers coming in more young rifles because if the Americans can't stop them, more people will come. And already these former cabinet ministers are starting to talk with their allies in the other Central American states. Now, only a few decades before, all of what we call Central America was one country. They formed one big republic that broke apart into Honduras, Guatemala, Costa Rica, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. So the leaders of these countries are pretty darn related and interconnected. In fact, the um, one of the generals that Walker fought in that Battle of Virgin Bay where he won pretty easily, within like six months, it's the president of Honduras. So the Nicaraguan okay. general becomes the president of Honduras. So they're all completely on the same page. With the exception of the country of El Salvador, all of them denounce the provisional government because Walker's there. Doesn't look good for Walker. No. So he knows... I need more soldiers, I need more settlers, and if the American government recognizes me and these countries try to fight me, I'll get American support. He wasn't going to get American support, but that was his intent. When you say American support, are you talking governmental American support or the, or public opinion? Because he had a lot of public opinion behind him earlier in this, in this story. It's both. This is mostly diplomatic pressure. Hey, don't fight this guy. 
you're going to make a lot of Americans very unhappy. Look what they're already doing. You know, you don't you don't want to wake the bear yeah. kind of thing. The armies of all of those countries, El Salvador even included, even though they generally were supporting of them, start to mobilize. They have a lot more men than he does. And specifically... Even with the boat? And specifically, uh, the army of Costa Rica, which is to the south, is the only... Modern day times, Costa Rica and Panama are to the south, but at this point, Panama is part of Colombia. So only Costa Rica is the only other nation to the south. The rest are to the north. They start to mobilize pretty quickly, too. And this becomes the first real test of Walker's tenure as commander-in-chief. And it doesn't necessarily go the way that he hopes. So it's important here to get a little bit of a perspective on the chronology of how long some of these events are taking, when we are in history, um, mostly because a, a good portion of the, the next activities are all happening simultaneously. We've already talked about a couple things that are happening at the same time, um, but now this is when the Walker story gets pretty complicated. This is when Vanderbilt appears and takes an important role. Walker left from California in May of 1855, he conquers Granada in October of 1855. So it took him three months, five months, I can count, to <laughs> take over. And he only gets a couple of reinforcements of troops. Once in control, within about a month, he's already alienated everybody. It gets worse and worse and worse to the point where the provisional government leaves him. So it's not looking great. No. But over the winter of 1855 into 1856... That's when the different Central American states start to mobilize to attack. And what actually ends up happening, and he gets support from the Nicaraguans on this one, the provisional government, is the country of Costa Rica strikes first. It's not a sentence you hear very often. No, Costa Rica doesn't even have a military anymore. <laughs> They're the only country in the world without an army. But they had an army now, and it's very well run. They have a president by the name of Mora, who is being supported by his brother, another Mora, and then a man named Cañas. So I remember these guys' names because they take a pretty important role. The border between Nicaragua and Costa Rica is about half the San Juan River, which is part of that transit route, and the other half is a mountain chain with a valley. And that's the main land route. The Costa Ricans know if they can take that transit route from the Nicaraguans, that can probably choke Walker and keep him from getting more men, more supplies, more support. The more they control the transit and shut it down, the more likely they'll take get rid of them. Walker knows this. They know this. From here on out, just realize that's everybody's strategy. Take the transit road. Cut off the steamers. Cut off the road. And then Walker can be defeated. They literally want to starve him out. Walker decides to attack first. He was a very aggressive general, almost to a flaw. And when he attacks first, he puts in command a man named Louis Schlesinger, who gets together a group of uh, four companies, two American that were good American troops that had been there a long time with rifles, a French company and a German company, who, when you're thinking about it, why were the Germans and French there? They were true mercenaries who had showed up because at this point, Walker's promising lots of acreage and a house and special laws. He had confiscated land from a lot of Nicaraguan rich people, which prompted all of them to flee to Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and hate him. So he's using those confiscated lands as the carrot to get people to come over. But these troops are not very good troops. So when they attack Costa Rica, 
and they invade Costa Rican territory, they're actually on equal terms, numbers-wise, yeah. with this outfit of Costa Ricans. And the Costa Ricans beat them back badly. They not only defeat this group, which Walker was not with this time. The Schlesinger guy was in charge. Schlesinger turns and runs. And he runs before his army runs. So the guy Walker puts in control is routed before his army. The French and Germans ran away before the battle. And the Americans have to run back because of their leader running back. A lot, a good deal of these men are wounded and captured. And they are all summarily hung. And that is the initial plan by the Costa Ricans. Kill everybody. We want them gone. They're going to try to invade our country eventually anyway. From what we've discussed, they're probably not wrong. And Walker did just invade their country. Um, <laughs> so they're also just objectively not wrong. But they, they can figure that the longer that Walker lasts, the more of a beachhead there is for American mercenaries. The more at risk all neighboring countries are at. And Walker really tried to brown-nose them to support him. And he was surprised and almost um, disappointed that they were not more in favor of him. Which, when you think about it, of course they're not. He's invading their countries. He or will. The, he thinks he's the hero. He thinks he's the hero. He thinks he's bringing something that is so much better. Of course they'd want it. So his soldiers go streaming back into Granada. And they bring stories of... Um, hey, the Costa Ricans are invading. And they start to realize something about these Costa Rican soldiers. They're well fit. They have nice uniforms. They also have rifles that shoot mini balls and can aim them and fire them well. So this is, this is different than what they've experienced so far in all their conflicts down here. When, he, when Walker first arrived in Nicaragua, he had to scour the countryside for metal that he could melt down to form bullets because the Nicaraguans were shooting metal iron slugs and ingots at each other. They're basically shooting each other with a pellet gun, yeah. you know, a slightly more deadly pellet gun that they couldn't even aim. And he had actual guns. I mean, that's a huge advantage. Yeah. That's the colonial advantage that this is, produces this. is this. why we talked about last episode the idea that he almost seems superhuman. Him and 50 guys could overthrow a government simply on the grounds that they were more well-armed. Yeah. And they have now lost that advantage. Now, the interesting part here is why they've lost that advantage. Because their governments do not have the money. The Costa Rican government is very poor at this time in history. They are being actively funded by Cornelius Vanderbilt. He has more money than all the Central American governments combined in his own personal wealth. And his logic here is he wants to take back the accessory transit company. Now, he's already manipulating their stock and taking it over from New York City itself. And he's just about to get enough of a stake in the company, we're talking a majority share, to take it from Morgan and Garrison. And Morgan and Garrison are aware of this and panicking. Um, but he knows if he can get rid of Walker, their foothold in the country is gone. You know, maybe wondering why. Why, is Wa why are Walker and Morgan and Garrison tied together? When Morgan and Garrison had taken away the accessory transit company from Vanderbilt, it was not doing well financially because he was actively competing against it. So in order for them to raise money, they linked up with Walker's government. They promised him a big loan, which allowed for him to pay his army, pay Nicaraguans, and do a lot of repair work and things like that. So they give him this big loan and make Walker's financial situation, right after he takes over in October, pretty solid. And then they go into an agreement. And this agreement is 
particularly dastardly because what they decide to do is have Walker put together a fake commission and say that the accessory transit company, which they own, has been actively defrauding the Nicaraguan government, which it had been, and therefore was going to lose its charter. It's a legal right to do what it did, you know, have the different transportation routes through Nicaragua. And then once they did that, Walker would just recharter a company that one of their business associates owned, and then they would just link their steamships to that company and just simply switch from one company to the next. A little logo swap. Basically. That's it, yeah. Once Walker does that, that's when Vanderbilt says, you're done. I'll ruin you too. And he begins to actively fund both the Northern armies of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, as well as the Costa Ricans. He's just about to get the transit company back, and it's pulled from him. He spent five years and pretty much all of his effort trying to get it back, and they pulled it from him right at the last minute because they were desperate. So Walker's in control of the country. All the Nicaraguan cabinet ministers have left. They've even started to form another government. So now there's two governments. There will eventually be three governments. There's the provisional government of Nicaraguans. Walker tries to set up his own government. And then there's the expatriates that, that are in the United States who claim their own government and are using the ambassadors and consuls in the United States to argue for their own government there. So there's three Nicaraguas all fighting with the provisional government having the support from all the different countries. It's chaos. So through that, the winter of 1856, Walker is trying to get as many soldiers as he can, and he's trying to get as much money as he can. And he's getting a lot of soldiers. They're coming from three places now. Since Morgan and Garrison set up their, um, their company, they set it up from New Orleans. They're getting original soldiers coming from New York, and according to Walker, his best soldiers from California, the old mining guys. They all come down, and he's, he's at about 1,000 men by now. But when the Costa Ricans attack... He's forced to retreat. The Costa Ricans immediately go for Rivas, that city on the transit route that controls all the trade. If Whoever holds Rivas holds Nicaragua at this point. They hold themselves up. They have over 3,000 men. Now, Walker has a good amount of guys. But in his active army, he's probably down to about 500. Right at this point, a huge cholera ep epidemic breaks out, and he's losing about a fifth of his men to cholera. And it makes you think, why were these guys there? They show up in this country where they're actively not wanted, and they're very likely to die of cholera, which is a brutal way to die. For what? It's not like these guys are making lots of money. It's not like they have a very comfortable life. The typical soldier was barely shooed. They spent their entire day just getting drunk. At least that's what Walker complains about later. So these men are there, and none of them are fit. Walker has to retreat from Rivas, and the Costa Ricans take over. And the second battle Rivas starts when Walker decides he has to take it back. Because he knows if he doesn't take it back, he's done. And it looks exactly like the first battle of Rivas. With more people. Town square. He charges straight into the town square. There it is. If you take the town square, you take the city, right? It's like a video game where you take the one spot, and it's king of the hill, and it's yours now. Like, it changes it's colors. The, the timer come down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. But when he takes that city, it, it goes pretty much the same way. First of all, the battle's a little bit more modern in the fact that there's cannons there. Now, cannons are a pretty big deal when you're hiding behind walls because they can shoot through them. And there's two cannons. They're old Napoleonic era brass cannons. Things are tiny. 
but they can still shoot holes in the walls. And they're pointing at Walker's men. So they do what Walker's men do best. They charge the cannons. He gets about, you know, a group of guys, and they just run straight at them, shooting wildly, and they grab them, and they pull the cannons back to them. On the way, they would take ammunition carts, which is talking carts filled with um, bullets, and they would, like, drag them in front of themselves as well to, like, barriers. That, that seems high risk. So some of them would charge, and some would drag the ammunition carts. I mean, this is the smoke of the battlefield. Hard to exactly tell who's doing what. But they get these cannons back. They know that because, again, all the Costa Ricans are well entrenched behind barricades on the far side of the plaza, they can shoot the cannons at the Costa Ricans. It's at this point that there's a really funny story. There's a guy by the name of Arkansas. Guess where he's from? I'm going to say Louisiana. Close. Dang. He's from Arkansas. Ah, I should have known. He's only known as Arkansas. Seems like it's a little on the nose. It's like a classic mercenary name. You know, just where are you from? Arkansas. All right, that's your name now. He, he becomes famous because he was such a good shot. Just to give you an idea of why, again, they were seeming superhuman, he was able to sharpshoot Costa Ricans through tiny, like, crenellated openings. We're talking maybe the size of, like, uh, a baseball, an opening. He could shoot guys through that. They also started to put snipers up on the tops of bell towers and shoot down the Costa Ricans. Well, night starts to fall, and they're kind of stuck, and the Costa Ricans start to charge the positions and stab through the doors, and guys are getting stabbed in the hands and really being brutalized. The snipers up above in the bell tower, one of whom is Walker's brother, Norval. Norval. Walker's mother's maiden name was Norval. Walker's middle name was Norval. Everybody in the family was named Norval. I mean, I thought Arkansas was uncreative. (laughs) So Norval is up there, and he gets drunk, and a lot of the Walker guys just get drunk but walker realizes that as night's falling he got he has to get out he's lost the battle he may have lost the war he needs to get out so they do pretty much the same thing they did in the first battle just a little quieter they carve a hole in the back of the building and as soon as it's dark they walk away the costa ricans expected the battle to resume the next day and basically let them go now they do realize pretty quick that all the americans are not shooting at them anymore but um, Mora, the Costa Rican general, says, no, no, my, my, I've lost five times more men than Walker has. My guys have been really shot up. I'm not going to follow them. I've won the battle. That's, that's good. Yeah, they have, they have the city that everyone needs to hold this, the country. The end of that battle is incredibly tragic. There are so many dead men littering, littering the countryside and littering the city that they can't bury them all. I hear two versions of what happens next. Some... Versions blame this on Walker, and Walker, of course, blames this on the Costa Ricans. They throw the corpses into the wells. That's not sanitary. Do you want a plague? Because that's how you get a plague. And they do. A cholera plague breaks out in April of that year, which is the battles in April. And the Costa Ricans start to die really quick, the soldiers do. So they abandon Nicaragua and flee the, flee the plague and bring it right back to Costa Rica. It spreads around Costa Rica to such an extent that it kills 10% of the people. So because of this rinky-dink battle where maybe 50 men die, 10,000 Costa Ricans die. Might be 100,000. I know it's 10% of the people. That's an enormous portion of the population. At the same time, there's a giant army forming in the north. It's called the Septenarian Army, and it's the somehow allied army of every other Central American state who in previous, just a few years previously, were all fighting each other. They now have someone to ally against and fight together. So in a way, William Walker 
helps to establish the statehood of all of those countries by giving them someone to fight, an enemy to fight against. And in the ensuing months, the campaigns of 1856 and 1857, we will see the desperation that happens when you're alone and stranded in a foreign country. Thank you for joining us for part two on William Walker. To read ahead or learn more, uh, we have all of our resources in our show notes. You can go there to purchase any of the books. And while you're there, we have a link to our Facebook group if you want to be a part of a discussion about this episode or any of the other episodes or really just anything. Uh, Like I said in the last one, we're still just getting off the ground. This is our first series. So if you want to go over to iTunes and leave us a review, that would be amazing and incredibly helpful. Until next time.